welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Hi, welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. Today, my guest is Jigger Shaw. He's currently the director of the Loans Program Office at the U.S. Department of Energy, where he has $40 billion of authority within manufacturing, innovative project finance, and tribal energy. But that's just the most recent chapter in his career as a clean energy leader. Welcome, Jigger. Thanks for having me. It's exciting. Well, I, I'm you know very pleased to have you. You've got a, like a big role, and you know HVDC is near and dear to my heart. And how many people can actually say that? So, and you've got a big role. <laughs> You, me, and our five listeners. No, I'm kidding. But I, I always like to start this out with who the heck is Jigger Shaw? In the sense of what's your background that's led you here? So what's your you know canned statement of the path through Sun Edison, where you did some interesting stuff, the Carbon War Room, yeah, that's Clean Feet, et cetera? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, look, I think that in general, my MO has been about the commercialization of technology. So when I was a kid, what fascinated me was that both solar panels and nuclear power were fully commercial at the time, but not going anywhere. And so I started a journey of asking questions around, well, why isn't it going anywhere? And you can imagine the answers to solar were different than the answers to nuclear. And so I ended up gravitating towards solar and spending a lot of years on figuring out how to commercialize solar. And what I would say is that, you know, the, the thing that I've learned more than anything else is that it doesn't really help to villainize the people that you're interacting with along the way. What matters is just trying to figure out exactly what the barriers are, whether, you know, manufactured barriers or real barriers, and then figuring out how you overcome it. So, I, I mean, today I'd say my expertise is really in mapping these barriers to commercialization and then figuring out what tools we have to overcome them. Yeah. And, you know, you, you've had some interesting backgrounds because you've got a mechanical engineering degree, which a lot of people probably don't realize because yeah. your jobs have been CEO, founder, you know, and increasingly influencer. You get to spend time with people like Richard Branson. You know, not a lot of mechanical engineers can say that. But, you know, let's just I'll pull at that thread a little bit. What is, that me- mechanical engineering is a specific and deep discipline. You know, and, and how does how's that informed some of your the way you view the world? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the University of Illinois is a tough university to get through. And it has a pretty storied electrical engineering group with, you know, the uh, invention of semiconductors and all sorts of cool stuff there, as well as the World Wide Web, right, where Mark Andreessen came from and, and others. And so... Those of us on the mechanical engineering and civil engineering side and the general engineering side were sort of the black sheep, I think, at the University of Illinois to our much more popular electrical engineering and computer science brethren. But I'd say, look, I think when you think about what it takes to build, to rebuild the world, right, which is really what climate change is, I do think the physical limits of, you know, how things work and uh, you know, how things get constructed and how things last for not just 20 years, but 80 years or 100 years, et cetera. I think there's a level of humility that comes from mechanical engineering that you may not get from some of the other disciplines. 
Oh, I, I agree. And last week, or a couple, you know, I was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was speaking to uh, Andy Tang, who's got the sure. VP of, you know, you know, Andy? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he and I were talking about the failure of Silicon Valley to get the energy transformation. You know, they thought it was ripe for disruption and they thought, you know, it could be disrupted as easily as digital and media. And it's, you know, A, you can't disintermediate the people who own the wires when you've got to push electricity down them. You know, that was Andy's big point. And B, they kind of missed the timeframes for the transformation. You know, we're talking just before we started about everything you do in, invests in stuff that takes a long time to come to fruition. Yeah. Right? And, you know, you've got 77 applications for close to $80 billion worth of loans right now, obviously more applications than money you have to disperse in your organization. And some of those are going to be HVDC for, and it's going to take a decade before, or, or 15 years before some of that capacity is in place. You know, it's, it's a long range process for infrastructure. Yeah. I think, I mean, as you know, I mean, many Silicon Valley folks have likened transmission to fiber and all of the overbuild of fiber back, you know, with Global Crossing and all sorts of other people in the late 90s. And, you know, the reality of the situation is that it's, it's vastly different, right? That the mm-hmm. ability to store data is actually a lot cheaper than the ability to store electrons. And the ability to build pipe is a lot cheaper for fiber optic networks than it is for transmission, right? And, you know, I think one of the things that people try to gloss over is the fact that you know, that we can build natural gas pipelines and fiber pipelines and other things on a regular basis. But, you know, when you think about how we do that, right, a lot of Department of Transportations around the country actually do rent out their right-of-ways to fiber and to natural gas pipelines and other folks. And most of that's undergrounded. And so mm-hmm. they can afford to underground everything and, you know, make it out of sight, out of mind. With HVDC and or just you know regular transmission lines, if you try to underground things, it ends up being four to five x more expensive, and the question becomes who pays, right? I mean, how valuable is the end product today in this country? We spend a lot of money on internet service, probably actually way too much, right? I mean, we should be paying twenty five bucks a month, and a lot of us are paying hundred bucks a month, but but we pay a lot for that. And the amount of that money that goes into the fiber is actually pretty low, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, a few percentage points. And so as a result, they can overspend on the cost of undergrounding by three to four or five X and it not really affecting their business model where overspending on HVDC by four to five X, you know, has a lot of impacts on uh, business models. Yeah, well, certainly a lot better than high voltage alternating current, which has real problems with increased, you know, uh, resistance with undergrounding or underwater and HVDC. You can at least put 10 kilometers past the NIMBYs underground and get somewhere and you can repower AC. But, you know, to to pull out that comparison just a little more. Yeah, the the magic of laser multiplexing on on fiber. HVDC is an amazing tech, <laughs> but it's not laser multiplexing and, you know, optical routers that increased the capacity of pipes by three or four orders of magnitude. Don't forget about superconductors, <laughs> <laughs> liquid cooled superconductors. There is an interesting thing here because um, 
you've got uh, two major, your transmission loans program yeah. broken into two big chunks. You got the 5 billion or so for the one side, which is at all in the United States. And you got 3.25 billion for just Western transmission. And a big part of that is resilience. Now, you know, as we compare and contrast other jurisdictions, we look at Europe, which, you know, undergrounds a lot more of its electricity infrastructure so that it is, you know, doesn't need to be repairable. It's just more hardened against natural disasters. And as we look at California's PG&E transmission problems that cause blackouts there due to wildfires and stuff like that, one of the questions for you is, are you in your loans program looking at balancing that resilience and that, you know, uh, disaster survivability because that investment is worth it? Well, look, I think that if there was, first of all, the loan programs office and the Department of Energy, right? Some of the buckets of money that you're talking about come out of the Office of Electricity and some other buckets. But like, I think, you know, we don't pick the options that people choose, right? I mean, we fund the options mm-hmm. that they choose and come to us. And so, you know, I think that if all five options were on the table and they could just do a simple overhead line that was, you know, the cheapest possible line, and then they had the choice of undergrounding or not undergrounding or the things, then you could imagine that many public service commissions or others might choose the cheapest possible cost because of the cost share requirements that, that they have to take on. Today, we're in a situation where those options aren't really on the table, right? So it doesn't really make sense for people to build large-scale transmission lines in wildfire-prone areas overground because it, it, it's likely to burn again within you know the next 20 years and, and cause a huge amount of not just cost to the infrastructure, but also loss of life. I mean, when you think about the number of people who've died from these wildfires and the subsequent fires that you know, were caused by transmission sparking and whatnot, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge tragedy, right? And so, so those options are no longer on the table that I can see. And okay. so now the question really becomes, how do we deal with cost allocation? Because for many of the public service commissions, they have generally viewed each individual component as its own docket, right? So we need to build transmission. What is the cost of this transmission? Oh, it's 4.5 cents a kilowatt hour net to transport power. That's too expensive. Let's figure out whether we have alternatives, right? Uh-huh. And I think what you're seeing is, is that there is a greater understanding now around us having to look at system costs and that some individual components of the system might cost a lot more money. But in the end, when you have relatively frequent occurrences of generation prices spiking to you know, $500 a megawatt hour, that that is a really huge cost to ratepayers, and that ultimately paying that four and a half cents a kilowatt hour as a an insurance policy against those spiking generation costs can be worth it on a system basis. And you see the same with storage, where you know pumped hydro may not pencil under existing rules, but yep. when you think about the role that pumped hydro plays on managing the grid and the system people often find it to be invaluable uh, as part of grid operations. Yeah, anybody who pays any attention to me knows that pumped hydro is near, also near and dear to my heart with HVDC. I've you know, got a global projection of grid storage globally through 2060, and pumped hydro is the largest percentage of that, that mix, it, in part because 
We built, we commercialized the first one in 1907. The vast majority of grid storage that exists today is pumped hydro, and the vast majority of storage that's in construction globally is also pumped hydro. This doesn't get a lot of attention. I keep finding people who are just not aware of it. What is pumped hydro? I even get that question sometimes. Oh, sure. So, yeah. But I have a question for you. I mean, you know, obviously pumped hydro, you know, the barriers to entry from pumped hydro. We did the FAST program three, four years ago to try to find a way to accelerate pumped hydro. But it's a purely regulatory thing. You know, even closed loop off river pumped hydro that doesn't impact rivers, fish stock, downstream silting is off, you know, protected land. That still requires four federal agencies worth of approvals from Bureau of Land Management to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's problematic. And this is probably one of the barriers you're looking at because pumped hydro is really easy. It works. You pump water uphill, you'll yeah. come back down. So I wouldn't say that that's the barrier, though. I mean, oh, okay. having having been at the Department of Energy now for a number of months, I mean, we've looked at lots of pumped hydro projects. I, I haven't heard from a single one of them that that federal regulatory processes have been the problem. In general, mm. the problem is getting an economic agreement in place with their local jurisdiction, right? Mm. Whether it's existing pumped hydro that folks like First Power own in the Northeast, or whether it's new pumped hydro that you know folks like Nextera are trying to build in, in California. The challenge is figuring out everyone acknowledges from a system modeling point of view, how valuable the pumped hydro storage is. But when you look at the existing wholesale market power rules, the compensation for those benefits are not being conferred onto the project. Mm -hmm. And so unless you have some sort of rate basing mechanism for that project, there's actually no way to just fund that project on a merchant basis and just expect that you're going to get paid a delta, for instance, between you know, filling the reservoir at $20 a megawatt hour and, and um, emptying it at $500 a megawatt hour, right? You can't just look at those spreads as a way to pay for the asset. And so the question becomes whether the regulatory bodies in those jurisdictions will provide some sort of rate basing like mechanism for these assets. And remember, it's not just HVDC lines that need this or pumped hydro that needs this, or for that matter, the the you know Delta Utah hydrogen storage project, which is just another from a form of pumped hydro basically in Utah uh, that we recently approved that's part of this. It's also you know nuclear plants where you know it's hard to rape to justify a merchant nuclear plant in a place like Texas, even where you have regular occurrences of power prices going above $500 a megawatt hour. Uh, particularly over the last four or five weeks, but I mean, you know, even over the last four or five years, it's hard to get a private sector investor to say, uh, sure, you know, we'll we'll put in a nuclear plant and and you know take our chances on the the market curves. You need a, a regulatory body that'll rate base that asset, right? And so I think what we're finding is is that it's really this over financialization mm-hmm. of the market that is causing all of these assets to have challenges, you know, not wind and solar per se, but it's, it's really more mm-hmm. just the financialization of the assets, which was led by Enron in the late 90s. And we haven't really replaced that framework with something brand new. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, one of the challenges the United States has, not uniquely, but this distinctly, is that the patchwork of regulations and financial models is down well below the national level. And so, you know, 
Texas is an obvious example. You know, exclude. You know, it went its own way in the 1930s and has no capacity market. Has a bunch of problems like that. We go to the UK, for example. They've got a regulated asset base which covers nuclear and carbon capture schemes, for better or for worse. And now they've just introduced uh, Westminster's and just uh, brought in a cap and floor mechanism, which covers pumped hydro storage, so that it's uh, a mechanism sure. where they at least guarantee the bottom their their costs get covered, and then they can make some profit. They just can't make a ton of profit. But even there, some of the energy majors be, are I know are investing on the you know current you know windfall of oil prices in on their books assets, which they expect to own and manage for a long time as energy providers. So it, it's, I, I look around the world, you, you of course have a, a jurisdiction of the United States. So you're dealing with the specific constraints the United States. And yeah, the United States is for better or worse exceptional. Well, I mean, I look, I think that I do have the ability to learn from the experiences of other <laughs> groups around the world. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's come out of this commodity super cycle that we're sitting in right now is the value of diversification, mm-hmm. right? So when you think about, you know, the decisions that Germany took to shut down nuclear plants in favor of Russian gas, you know, I don't think that was a great example, but neither is what's happened in the Northeast of the United States where Nepal is 68% gas, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and so Canadian I think- HEDC was shut down by NIMBYs. So, so I think when you think about where we want to go, I think diversification is the key to surviving climate change, right? So you want a fair amount of nuclear power, right? You want a fair amount of solar and wind because it's the lowest, you know, levelized cost of energy. You want a fair amount of transmission to be able to move that stuff around. So when uh, there are weather pattern changes that you can transport power from places that have shortages, like for instance, the HVDC mesh that we're looking to build between New Jersey and New York have already agreed to do the HVDC mesh for offshore wind. The Northeast has not yet decided to do it, but I think we will get them on board. Once that gets in place, well, now you can ship power from New Jersey up to Boston during a polar vortex, yep. right? And so, you know, what is the value of that diversification? And you see the same in the UK. The UK market has been criticized heavily for uh, the amount of diver- diversification that they've pursued, whether it's uh, macro grid transmission lines that they've built uh, from the UK to other parts of Europe, or whether it's their pursuit of nuclear power, which admittedly is coming in at more expensive prices than they were expecting. But I think when you think about the impacts of the commodity supercycle on the UK market, they've been much more manageable than uh, other markets that frankly, you know, were far tighter on uh, their degrees of freedom. Right. And I think yeah. part of part of what we're trying to solve for across the country is recognizing that, you know, depending on increasing transmission by three to five X in order to decarbonize the grid is you know, a very risky strategy. Right. Depending mm-hmm. on, you know, breakthroughs in battery storage that will be able to solve for seasonal storage is a very risky strategy. Right. So in seasonal storage does cost more money and requires a rate basing impact, right? Which is what we did with the Delta Utah project for hydrogen. And then you've got nuclear power plants that um, have played an essential role in our grid for many, many decades. Mm-hmm. And, you know, contrary to popular belief, we do have the largest operating nuclear f- fleet in the mm-hmm. world, and it is the highest capacity factor, right? I mean, the French nuclear fleet operates in the 70s, 
in terms of uptime and capacity factor. Ours operates 92% capacity factor. And so we have the best run fleet in the world as well. And so the question really becomes, you know, how do we use our technology prowess, right? We've got the best small modular nuclear designs in the world now between G Itachi and uh, New Scale and Holtec to replace a lot of these retiring coal plants and natural gas plants where the grid was already built for those locations, right? To be able to bring in uh, reliable power to increase diversity as we, you know, reach our decarbonization goals by 2035. Yeah, um, certainly broadening the grid, more storage, they're essential things. The broad scale and lack of population density in the United States is not a unique challenge globally, but it's a specific challenge. Sure. You know, know, Canada is a strip of 100, you know, miles across the 49th parallel of people, and, you know, and then a few people in scattered areas north of there. But the United States has got like big population along both coasts and some big population in the middle, and it's a big country. You know, and that all said, though, there's some interesting challenges. You, you did mention nuclear a few times. So I'm going to poke at that a bit. You know, I've done a lot of work assessing nuclear around the world and looking at uh, small modular reactors. I'll be talking to a group of uh, a couple of hundred institutional investors through Jeffrey's Investment Bank next month, and I'll be debating a a former IAEA nuclear physicist about small modular reactors. Um, I'm fairly bearish on them. And the reason is that, you know, we've uh, just, it's a mechanical thing. So it's a physics thing. They forego most of the advantages of scaling thermal generation for smaller reactors, which are less efficient thermally. Well, there is no scaling benefit. There hasn't been since the 1970s. We've had a well, negative learning curve on nuclear power plant, coal power plant, natural gas power plants since the 1970s. There's well, no I, benefit of large. I, I agree at one point and I disagree at another. The physics is why we made thermal power plants bigger. That's foregone. The secondary part- That's been discredited. To make... Yes. I don't think it has. It has. It is oh, fully discredited that we have a manufacturing expertise in the world. It is not based on bigger is better. That has been fully discredited. The entire model today is small is beautiful. That like, if you can mass manufacture something, whether it's solar panels or off-grid, or sorry, off, offshore wind turbines, you get a learning curve, right? Wright's oh, law I'm was invented a long time not disagreeing with that ago. at all. But not doing, civil works, doing civil works projects in one location brings no economies of scale and no manufacturing benefits, none whatsoever. Right. I'm agreeing agreeing with that. It's the physics of thermal generation being bigger for heat transfer, for efficiencies of thermal stuff, but purely the physics of the the engine. So smaller, yes, you might achieve manufacturing experience curve values or Wright's law values. You might. We have like 17, we we have 17 designs. And the way I describe it is, you know, you have to pick one and commit to that. Which we're doing. Yeah, which is great. If you can do that, you might achieve value with it. I'll believe it when I see it. Well, you might believe it when you see it, but we still have to hit our 2035 decarbonization goals. This is the moment where we have to start making tough decisions. I just think this notion that we're going to, you know, believe it when we see it, that's not how America works. The way America works is that we, we identify really tough problems, whether it's putting a man on the moon or whether it's figuring out how Mm -hmm. to build out the highway system in this country. And then we bring our smartest people together and we solve it. I think the notion that like that we're going to let this problem escape ourselves and we're going to just leave it to 
27 disparate efforts to decide, you know, well, we'll see which one makes it. That's not how any of this works. Yeah, and it, it's interesting though, because as we look at, you know, some of the, like you've got the, the, the hydrogen thing that you, you've mentioned a couple of times, a bit over $500 million, your first major loan, uh, and you're on energy in, I think, your time at the DOE. Is, is that a correct statement? It's the way the press release reads anyway. Say that again. The first major loan on energy in a decade. And yeah, certainly that's your right. Time. It's the yeah. first loan that we've closed on in the Renewable Energy and Efficient Energy title since 2011, and the first loan we've closed on since Vodal in 2014. Yeah. You know, and Vodal is also a challenged, you know, uh, issue, as you know. You know, it's similar to Hinckley in terms of the price point it's ending up in. And as you say, negative learning curve on large-scale nuclear reactors, not disagreeing with you on that at all. The question for the Utah piece, though, um, to characterize it, 220 megawatts of alkaline electrolyzers, you know, and uh, two salt caverns, the expectation of increasing percentage, if I understand the, the, pro- the, pro- the project correctly, using, you know, natural gas generators with an increasing percentage of hydrogen and eventually pure hydrogen to operate those for long duration storage. Is that a fair characterization of yeah, the- Yeah, it's just, it's just pumped hydro in the version of, in the version of hydrogen. Well, from a physics perspective, it's very different, but yeah, it's, it's a long duration storage piece. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Yeah, 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 yeah.